Hello, everyone. Welcome to the B-Side Podcast for the film stage, where we talk about movie stars and filmmakers, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones that they made in between. And today we are thrilled to finally be sharing with you at long last uh, an interview we conducted last year with esteemed filmmaker Joe Wright. Uh, His new film Cyrano is in theaters everywhere this Friday, February 25th. Uh, It stars Peter Dinklage, Haley Bennett, Kelvin Harrison Jr., and Ben Mendelsohn. It's a sweeping musical adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, It's a film Dan and I uh, both love uh, quite a bit and really enjoyed. So please do seek it out. Uh, It's out everywhere this Friday, February 25th. Our conversation with Joe is a delightfully honest one. Uh, We talk through his career, of course, discussing Cyrano, but also diving deep into The Soloist and why he's extremely proud of that film. Anna Karenina, which is another one we love here a lot, and the big swings of 2015's Pan uh, and their repercussions, actually. There's some quick bits in there about Pride and Prejudice, The Darkest Hour, The Woman in the Window. Uh, So we cover a lot. Um, It's a really, really great conversation. Really glad to be sharing it with you all. Um, Joe was just, you know, he was an open book and that, uh, of course is always appreciated here. So again, at long last, here it is our conversation with the director of Cyrano, Joe Wright. Here we are the B side and we are lucky enough, me and Connor to be joined with Joe Wright, um, director of Cyrano, which if you're listening to this is out now. Um, and we encourage you to watch it. I know me and Connor have already seen the film and, our big fans, we were just joking before we got on with you, Joe, we've been listening to the soundtrack quite a lot. It's now become my, um, I the soundtrack is floating around our house and my young uh, 15-month-old son is seems to like it which is very important and good so that's been that's been uh that's been a positive in the mecca household but um thank you for joining us on the b-side how are you doing today i'm I'm doing okay thank you i'm in london uh and um well actually i'm not in london i'm in the english countryside in somerset and um uh i'm so i'm home happy to be here that's great. Yeah, I mean, uh, that sounds like a good place to be. Um, so let's start with Cyrano. Obviously, we, we'll get into the B-sides, but Cyrano is the, the reason for the season, as they say. So obviously, it's it's a surprisingly um, – it's been adapted many times, probably many more times than people realize, Cyrano. And um, obviously, the 1897 play is kind of where it all starts. Cyrano was a real person, but the play is kind of – where it all, uh, you know, comes from. How how does Cyrano happen for you? I know there's a there's a lot of a lot comes before the film, and maybe you can just walk us through how it becomes this great film. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Haley Bennett uh, invited me to uh, go up to Connecticut, uh, a tiny theater called the Chester Theater in Connecticut. Uh, where she was doing a workshop production of this new musical uh, with Pete Dinklage playing Cyrano and music by The National. 
Um, and I was intrigued and I went along and I knew the story very well. I wasn't looking to do, you know, a, a, a movie of Cyrano. Um, but the casting of Pete shocked me um, because suddenly the the story had a relevance and uh, immediate authenticity that I hadn't um, supposed. And it was incredibly moving. I mean, I, you know, the, the previous, previous iterations of, of, of the story I've found to be funny and I've identified with Cyrano, you know, um, and clever. Uh, but this, this piece of casting hit me in the heart in a way that I was, I was not, uh, not, not, not expecting. And, um, and so then I, then I approached them and said, you know, I'd like to develop the thing as a, as a movie. Mm. Um, and they, they, they agreed. So we, we spent a couple of years developing it. Um, I guess, I guess at that time, pre pandemic, for me, it was about, looking for the similarities in each other as humans rather than the differences. And that felt like an important theme at the time of Trump and, 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 you know, Boris Johnson and what have you, uh, a time during which we were constantly being made, you know, aware of differences, you know, um, and that we, and, 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 and positioning, positioning ourselves in a kind of isolationist position. And, uh, um, and and suddenly this was about the beauty of our differences and 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 then the pandemic happened and and we were strangled starved of 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 human connection and again the film the story seemed to talk to our need for human connection and the difficulty in connecting um, with other people I, I certainly feel that. Yeah, no, I mean, that obviously comes through. And I think to your point, yeah, I mean, there's a universality to the the core story, of course. And I think, you know, comedy versions like Roxanne in the 80s and, you know, the Gerard Depardieu uh, version in, I think, 1990. I mean, there's so many you can point to. But this one, of course, being a musical with such great music from the National, as you mentioned, um, and Peter Dinklage being cast in the lead role. I mean, those are all such crucial points that really lend itself to being, you know, new, right? Like new in, in a way that's exciting. And I think, you know, as a segue, I suppose, into your larger career, something you kind of have done throughout your career, I'd say, right? I mean, you you know, you come up um, in the theater somewhat, right? I know you were involved with music videos before you were making movies. And then obviously Pride and Prejudice is this quite incredible debut film. I almost think it's not almost it's almost underrated how crazy it is that's your first film when you think about the impact it's had on culture i mean it almost revives the jane austen adaptation which it kind of you know it, it popped in the 90s with modern adaptations but your version where you're almost it's set in the time period but you're modernizing the approach um it, it's interesting because cyrano feels like connective tissue where you're almost doing that with another classic tale, but also adding music. I mean, is, is that, or how aware of that are you, I guess, suppose when you're making Cyrano? I think I wanted to return with Cyrano. I wanted to return to something that was kind of inherently at my core, which is a, a belief in 
in in in and a trust in love and innocence and and kindness and compassion compassion actually i think is probably the the big word um but also that they there is something of the fairy tale about them you know mm. and um, and you're right i come from a theater although not a usual theater i come from a puppet theater my parents ran a puppet theater in london um, and I, I think there's something about the aesthetic of the puppet theatre about both those films, um, and also Anna Karenina that that um, is is deep in my bones, really. Yeah, and Anna Karenina. I mean, I know me and Connor. That's like that's a, a, a huge huge fans over here. Um, <laughs> yeah, we love that movie. Um, and that I mean, we would call so, so just just to give you context, right? When we do these we usually call out the films in particular. So I think we were kind of thinking in terms of quote unquote, your B sides, which like we were talking about, there aren't a lot cause you've had this pretty eclectic, successful career, obviously just running through it. Right. We, we mentioned pride and prejudice. You followed up with atonement, um, both starring Kira Knightley, both very successful atonement. Just also, by the way, like not a B side, but one of my favorite books and watching you figure out how to adapt, like Ian McEwan, you know, the thing I always say about his writing is when I ever, whenever I read his writing, it makes me mad because he creates sentences I know I can never think of. And I'm always like, it frustrates me as someone who like fancies himself some sort of a writer. I'm like, oh man, this guy is too good. And the fact that you're able to take that and just make it into a great film is that's its own, I feel that could be its own podcast. And then of course, um, the soloist comes after that, and then you know, I think you consider the soloist could be a B side, Anna Karenina in a way could be a B side, and then of course Pan, in its way, is a B side. Those were, I think, the three that we were thinking of. Obviously, you have Hannah in there, which uh, it can't be a B side because it's like become a show and like is obviously influenced. I think you could say it in influenced action films quite a bit. Um, but I guess just going to Anna Karenina, because you mentioned it, and we can move backwards, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that film, there's so much happening. Um, I guess I'll just, what, what do you remember from Anna Karenina? Um, what stands out as you're making Cyrano, I suppose, with, with making that film? Um, I mean, Anna Karenina was a big leap of faith. Mm. Um, I had an idea. I was reading. I was reading um, a a Russian theatre maker and theorist called Meyerhold at the time, and he was talking about boiling things down to their very essential elements. Um, so, if you had a scene in a kitchen, um, did you need the whole kitchen, or did you just need the kitchen table? Um, uh, for instance, that's maybe a, not a great example, but um, uh, and so I was interested in that in terms of the film. I was interested in in trying to. I was interested in trying to get the audience to participate with their own imaginations, um, to fill in the gaps, you know, um, uh, because one of the things I became a bit frustrated with was the way in which film was expected to fill every inch of the screen with reality, um, some form of reality, you know, um, whereas theatre um, uh, requires the audience to participate 
with their imaginations. And I was wondering whether I could apply that to film, basically. Um, so I took this incredible script by uh, Sir Tom Stoppard uh, um, and uh, uh, put on my notice board um, each scene and I worked out, okay, if we were to set this only in a theatre, what would be the bare essentials that I would need to convey the theme or the setting of each scene? And that's and that was the kind of um, experiment. I mean, it was an experiment, really. Uh, and it's interesting because at the time, um, it wasn't as, you know, well received as I hoped it might be. Um, uh, but over time, uh, I find that more and more people talk to me about how they were excited by it, especially in Europe. And and I was recently in, in Poland for the Camera Image Festival there. And um uh and they spoke about that film far more than far more than any other. I think there's something quite I think there was a fork in the road at a certain point. Um, uh, America went towards kind of, um, I guess, what could be called kind of American social realism. Um, uh, the acting style became, you know, um, uh, Strasbourg and the method and, you know, that kind of route. Um, whereas Eastern Europe went towards Brecht. Um, and so uh, what I was doing was certainly more Brechtian than it was, you know, um, uh, social realist. And and so I think kind of those in the former Eastern Bloc recognised the aesthetic and the ideas and the theories behind the movie, perhaps more than Americans or Western cultures do. Yeah, that's interesting to put it that way. It's so interesting you say that because that's, Certainly something I lament a bit in our current filming and current state of cinema, um, which is probably overstated, but performances and like you're saying, bigger performances tend to be less and less, I suppose, um, um, putting it simply. But but to your point, yeah, Anna Karenina as an experiment in, in which you have these there's just so much happening on everybody's face and there's not a lot around them. So you're really focusing on them is, is that it's probably a reason so memorable. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great point. It's a fascinating use of space. Cause it's, you find a way to tell this sort of sweeping tale, which in any sort of traditional narrative would be big open spaces and, and, and all that. And you still get that feeling with it. And maybe it's, you know, maybe I'm just bringing that to it because, you know, you, you know the source material and so you know the scope of it. But I, I just rewatched it the other night in preparation for this. And it and it still just kind of floors me how you're able to cultivate what feels like some grand space, even though you're contracting it into the, you know, the four corners of a stage or something like that. Um, and it allows, I think, for you do something in that, which is the same thing that I think you also employ in Cyrano, which I like a lot is you find ways to make it feel cinematic specifically, uh, you know, in, in Anna Karenina, I remember the moment that just is burned in my brain and, uh, is the moment where Jude law tears up the letter and he throws it in the air 
and then the oh, snow yes. comes down. And it yes. just that would that I remember sitting at the AMC Kips Bay, <laughs> watching that happen and going, <laughs> This is cinema, like this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, that's the thing. I mean, that's really important to me. And I'm glad you picked up on that because, you know, although I'm setting that movie in a theater, um, my intention was to still make something that was inherently cinematic in its use of camera and montage, basically. Sure. Um, uh, and, 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 and 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 I and I I kind of I, I buck against the 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 label of being theatrical because you know I, I'm I'm thinking in cinema. Yeah, and it's it's something I think you carry over into Cyrano because I you know I always have a little bit of a hard time with movie musicals specifically because I feel like some of them fall into a trap of why is this a movie right like why am I not what what's different than me watching it on stage and, and why is it specifically cinematic? And I think you do things with Cyrano specifically with the camera and where you place things and, and how you choreograph those scenes. Um, you know, it, it, it's laid out in a very specific cinematic way. Um, and I also have to ask just as it relates to kind of getting into the musical sort of arena, you know, when it came to pan, for instance, um, those sort of needle drops or little musical cues that you have in that film, were those scripted that way or was that something you decided to kind of dabble with and 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 is that sort of the germination of your desire to then go full bore musical with something like Cyrano? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, to be honest with you, I think the germination of doing a full musical is probably more in, in Anna Karenina than it is in Pan. Um, uh, I conceived Anna Karenina as a kind of ballet Sure. Um, it was all about the dance. It was all about the 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 where's the line between blocking and choreography, um, and uh, so that that through line of dance became the kind of uh, well, if they're dancing, then why wouldn't they be singing too? Um, uh, the needle drop moments in Pan were really me. I mean, the thing that. I, I, I'm sure I haven't seen it since it was released. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the film probably doesn't work. Um, but the intention of that movie, which was misunderstood, uh, was I was making it for uh, my, you know, three-year-old son. Um, and I, my son is completely tonally erratic, Right. Uh, by which I mean, at one minute he's hysterical, um, uh, and and or was certainly at the age of three, hysterical in tears, crying, angry. Then he's laughing. The next second, uh, he's high as a kite. He's singing and he's you know jumping around, happy, happy, happy. And then suddenly a tiny thing happens, and the whole you know, um, and and I'm sure any parent can I can can identify with that. Um, and so what I was trying to do was to make a film that was tonally completely inconsistent mm. uh, in um, uh, in response to my son, who was is 
you know, tonally inconsistent, right? Um, of course, when people reviewed the film, they said, well, it's, you know, tonally inconsistent. <laughs> um, and that was one of the major, one of the major faults found with the movie. Uh, although actually that was the, the kind of one of the intentions of it. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, I'm, I'm glad we, we, we were talking about it because, yeah, there's so much in that film. I mean, there's quite literally so much in that film, right? And I think that is certainly one of, to revisit it is to be reminded of that in a positive way. I, I think certainly uh, it's, there's a lot happening and even like performance choices are, you know, the Garrett Hedlund performance, Hugh Jackman, all these, you know, they're big choices. And I think um, for that film and what you're trying to do, I think it does, it might not all work certainly, but I think it does work in a specific way. And I think one thing that you've, even in a film like Pan, which as you've talked about, you know, you're disappointed in the reception and all these things. It is your vision though. And I think that's something when we talk about these B-sides with other filmmakers and you know, movie stars, you know, when we talk about their careers and admiration comes in the, the specificity, right? If that makes sense. And I think you can lament or we could lament Pan and, oh, you know, it could have been these, you know, more than one movie and, and all these things. But I think it's nice that it's out there. Yeah. And and to your point, uh, in, in what you were trying to do. That's, we were trying something. We were trying yeah, something. That's, a, that's, I mean, that's lovely. You know what I mean? I think that's kind and of I an important I think in any yeah. other art form, one has a right to fail. Um, uh, Samuel Beckett, you know, always said, fail again, fail better. Um, uh, this idea that you have a right to fail, because if you're not failing occasionally, then you're not pushing, you're not experimenting, you're not trying new things. Um, uh, unfortunately, you know, um, uh, there's huge economic pressure to always succeed. Um, and so that means that often uh, work becomes kind of homogenized. Um, uh, but um, but yeah, one, one you know you try you try stuff. Yeah, I think yeah. So so it's yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting to talk about it. And and I would encourage. I mean, look, I would encourage our listener, our listener who obviously are interested in these things to um to seek out a pan and obviously Anna Karenina as we talked about and it's funny you know you mentioned as we just talk about this I would imagine and this might just be the most obvious thing in the world of course when I watch or rewatch Anna Karenina I do think of Pal Pressburger the red shoes right that you know and just that general a lot of what they were doing to your point there is this you know um Jack Cardiff right like there's this um, essentialism to their films, but within that minimalism, so much cinema, right? So I think, um, absolutely. I like I like the use of the word essentialism. Thank you. Yeah, please. You yeah. can you no. can steal that. You can use that <laughs> in, the next, in the next interview. <laughs> My filmmaking is just essentialism. There you go. <laughs> well, but even like you know, bring it back to Cyrano. Connor was saying, you know, the scene. Um, on the, I, 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 is it right to call it a pier? It's like the fort that that whole sequence. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's a great point of what we're kind of all saying, which is that that's a, a real location, right? I mean, that's or was it Italy? Where were you? In yeah, Sicily. Yeah, 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 Sicily. Sicily, Sicily. Right. So you're in Sicily. That place exists, right? Yeah. It's it's one location, and 
you're just moving the camera. You're overhead. You're you're going through the swords, right? There's like movement and non-movement together. I mean, that's the whole deal. You know what I mean? I mean, that I'll remember that scene for all forever, right? I mean, and that and all you need there, not that it's easy, but all you need is that location and, you know, specific camera moves and, and choreography, right? It's like those things are so important and um and yeah and anyway so that's it's just exciting it's it's, it's, and i am interested more and more um in in boiling things down to their bare essentials um and i think you know um i think as i progress through my creative life uh i become more and more interested in um minimalism or simplicity um uh and and what are the bare essentials that will convey the particulars of any given scene most economically and most effectively um and and that the interesting thing about that is that is that it's far more difficult than um than than big lavish you know, um, throw it all in there and see what happens. Um, right. uh, uh, it, it's, um, and that's exciting to me. That's what I'm, that's what I'm excited by at the moment. Can I ask, um, just cause I have it on my mind. This is just a very specific fan of pride and prejudice question. I don't know if you've seen, but the, the now famous, the hand flex that Matthew McFadden does. Yeah. I, I guess, where does that come from? Now it's like this iconic moment in, uh, in Jane Austen cinema. I mean, is that just something he does on the day or what, how did that happen? It was, um, it was me trying to, a lot of filmmaking is about problem solving, right? Mm. Um, uh, so even the, the conception of, 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 you know, shooting the entire Anna Karenina in a theater was, uh, the, the, the solution to a problem, which was, we don't have the money to go to locations, um, and the locations aren't available in England. So how are we going to make this movie? Well, what about if we set it all in a theater and try, you know, bum, bum. Um, so the, so the problem I faced in that given hand flex scene was how do I, um, convey a sexual chemistry between these two characters, uh, without dialogue, um, uh that contrasts the dialogue that's in conflict with the dialogue um uh and you know staring into each other's eyes didn't seem appropriate um but there's something about human touch when you touch someone who you're in love with the pheromones hit set off and so so it was just and and my dad always carved the most beautiful hands um, I've always liked hands. Um, uh, the the puppets' hands that my dad carved were were really special. My mum has incredible hands. I always watch people's hands. I love hands, basically, and so it was uh, um, conceived um, out of a necessity to tell the story, um, and and influenced by my love of hands and. Um, and that's how you come up with that idea. And then I said to, I said to Matthew, you know, we need some kind of, I want it to be as if an electric sort of current just passed through you. 
um and and then he did that flex and 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 that was the story told and then we also just need to acknowledge the absolute flex of filmmaking that is casting Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden as Elizabeth Bennett and Darcy and then as brother and sister seven years later in uh in uh, Anna Karenina I love it I mean I think uh when I the to be honest, the reason probably why um, Working Title uh, uh, gave me the job of directing Pride and Prejudice was because I came in with one central idea, which was that Elizabeth Bennett is 18 um, and Darcy is early 20s. Um, and this is a story about really young people. Um, Jane Austen was 21 when she wrote the first draft. Um, so it's about young people by young people, and it needs that energy. Um, uh, so, so that was a kind of that was the first you know um, choice made in that journey. Uh, but I don't think and Matthew, you know, playing a handsome leading man, however you know handsome Matthew is, never sat right with him. Um, uh, it's not how he sees himself. Um, and so uh, it was a joy to let him just um, explode, you know, uh, onto the screen in in Anna Karenina as this, you know, wonderful bon vivant. He had so much fun playing Anna Karenina and it was lovely, lovely to give him that freedom. Yeah, I mean, but but like you said, the, the resistance to leading man quality probably helps in Darcy, right? Because Darcy himself has some of that, right? And so I would imagine that probably works towards the goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think he, yeah. Although I just remember, I just felt, I feel very bad because I remember him just like being on this diet of kind of steamed chicken and um, uh, and just wandering around eating <laughs> steamed chicken, looking really upset. I think that might have had something to do with the, the look on his face playing the role as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, so one thing I want, so the solos we mentioned, right, that's your third film and it was a, a, quite a big film, right? It's basically, you have Robert Downey Jr. Right at the moment of, I mean, that it's funny to look back. I mean, that's, I mean, that is like one of the last times he played not, Iron Man, right? I mean, when you look back, it's interesting. It's, and I know the film was made, if not before, right around that time, right? Because it, it ended up coming out. Before. It was shot in 2007. Uh, he had just shot Tropic Thunder, right? But it had yet to come out. Um, and Jamie Foxx was the biggest star at the time. Jamie, Jamie was number one on the call sheet. And um, I was going to yeah. ask that, yeah. Um, uh, and so we caught him at, at an extraordinary moment in his trajectory. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a movie, you know, uh, in a totally different way, but, but, but in a, d d you're, you're doing a lot in the soloist, like rewatching. I was reminded it's this essential story, of course, but then you, you are, you know, and obviously correct me here, but, but there are these big social yeah, critiques, observations, right? You know, it, obviously it's set in Los Angeles. And and I was reminded rewatching it, wow, like Joe Wright is you're really going for it all in this movie. And I think it helps to have those two anchored lead performances. 
And um, and I guess I was also just curious to your point. It ultimately comes out in 09, right? So it ended up getting pushed back quite a bit, which I, I don't know why. I mean, I mean, obviously, we never know why that happens in the moment. But do you think that ended up hurting how that ended up getting received or anything like was, that? I mean, uh, there are three things to say about that film. The first thing to say is that I just had a psychotic breakdown um, and so was interested in making a film about mental illness. Um, uh, the second thing to say is that I approached it as a piece of British um, realism, if you like, um, uh, like a sort of Alan Clark movie. Um, so, uh, so what I, one of the demands I m made, um, on the studio was that I would only do the film if I could employ 500 members of the, um, LA homeless community. Um, uh, and amazingly they agreed and we set up a bank on Skid Row. And so, you know, these guys could, could, um, get their check and then, you know, get it cashed because most of them don't have bank accounts, obviously. 80% uh, of them uh, had been diagnosed with some form of mental illness. Um, uh, um, and we didn't discriminate against, you know, um, addicts or active addicts um, or, you know, anyone who worked in the sex industry or whatever. Um, and working with uh, them was one of the greatest privileges of my career. Uh, they were extraordinary and they taught me a huge amount and it was an absolute joy making that film. Um, it was commissioned or, you know, greenlit by... Um, uh, by... Um, well, Spielberg's company, what's it called? Um, DreamWorks. You know, sorry? DreamWorks? Yeah, it was a DreamWorks movie, exactly. It was a DreamWorks movie. And at the time uh, uh, when we made it, DreamWorks were at um, uh, Paramount. Um, this is a this is the first of two times this has happened to me. Uh, DreamWorks were at Paramount. And, um, and then... Uh, they left Paramount and went to Universal and left the film behind. Mm. Um, and so uh, Paramount got this movie that was about mental illness and, um, and really had no idea what to do with it. Um, I don't think they really got it. Mm. Uh, and importantly for that, for me, that, you know, I mean, it's it's also you know making a movie about real life and with you know real characters and so on. Um, uh, the central character Nathaniel Ayres, who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia, does not get better. You know, he's not cured, um, and he doesn't suddenly dis get get discovered as this kind of you know genius and and start playing lead cello for the LA Philharmonic Orchestra. That didn't happen, um, uh, and I think that feels true that is true to me to life you know i believe i believe that that if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia then you've got you know that's that's going to be with you and to some extent for life uh but that's not great hollywood um uh uh storytelling that's not <laughs> a great hollywood ending um and then the crash of 08 happened um and suddenly the idea of a film about homelessness and you know, people were people were 
not receptive to it, which, you know, it's a film, you know, I, I think about Pan and I go, that, that was a tricky one. I'm not sure about that film. Um, I'm not sure that film works. Um, whereas with The Soloist, I'm, I'm inordinately proud of that movie. And, um, and I feel that it, it works not on everybody's terms, but it works for me and it works for a lot of people who I've spoken to whose family have, you know, had some form of schizophrenia or some form of mental illness. It, it, it kind of, it's true and it doesn't candy coat their experience. Um, and so hopefully they feel seen by the film. Yeah. And I think uh, with the critical, you know, I think sometimes when things get pushed back and it looks a film looks a certain way um there can be this ease with which people approach what they think the film is um right if that makes sense where it's like oh this is one of these movies right type of a thing and i think sometimes a movie like the solo switch like i'm saying like like you're saying there's a lot of nuance in it, probably more than people remember, to be honest. And I think that's what you're talking about. And, and certainly, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, certainly, like even myself, I went into the rewatched with a little bit of uh, hesitance in how I remembered it. And I found myself a little surprised, like, oh, you know what? I was, this was not a fair thinking of how it was, you know, however, uh, 12 years ago. And just because you mentioned it, the second movie that that happened to you must have been The Woman in the Window, right? Because it was Sony and then, yeah, right. Yeah, it wound up on Netflix. Yeah. And, um, which I got to tell you, The Woman in the Window. I don't mean to sound, I don't mean to sound defensive either, you know. No, 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 no. Yeah. The movie works for some people. It doesn't work for others. Um, uh, but it's, it's one that I remain proud of, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, uh, it's one that I still feel I have a very, close uh attachment to where there are others that i have not so close emotional attachment to right um yeah i mean i think um um yeah so the solos and i'm just trying and then hannah comes after am i oversharing, am I oversharing? I are you like kidding I'm, no this is stop it joe this please. is this is amazing we love this <laughs> okay. no and i think the the i just so so hannah comes we mentioned before hannah comes after 2011 like we said basically i would i would say an iconic action movie at this point um there's the great score from i want to say it 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 is the chemical brothers right am i wrong that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay okay um scores in your films we should say uh, you're basically you know 100% on like <laughs> yeah. every score is iconic like elegy for dunkirk that whole sequence in atonement i i think i've listened to more than any other song and obviously pride and pride dario marinelli in that case and and um and then just I wanted to mention I we weren't even really going to mention this movie because it's quite new but the woman in the window I know there was a lot in the process of that ultimately coming out but there are you know De Palma-esque touches in that film that I would I it's on Netflix uh, that the, uh, there I I me and my wife watched that movie and enjoyed those flourishes immensely I will just say like you there are 
you know, the split diopter of it all, right? There's a lot of fun things in it, and I don't know how much you want to talk about that movie because, like I said, it's quite new. But, but I mean that. I I think I think that's a fun movie. I'm just I'm just gonna say that for the for the record. But, Thank um, you. No, I mean it is a bit. That one's still a bit raw. Um, totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, I will say though that the movie that I intended to make, and that I actually made, uh, the first or you know first couple of cuts of that movie, uh, were far more in line with what I intended. Um, and then, um, other people got involved and, um, and the budget was at a number whereby I had less control. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and the film, the final film, I don't feel is representative of my intentions. Um, so yeah, that's a lesson learned, you know, totally. Um, so we're, we're coming to the end of our time with you, but I, you know, we wanted to just, you know, um, yours is such an accomplished career and, um, we, we've been lucky enough now. We feel like we've talked about almost all the movies. I, we didn't bring up darkest hour, obviously not, not in any way a B side because it was made a whole lot of money. Oscars were won. The, that you know, but it's funny as I don't, we don't okay, have time. Darkest hour, darkest hour is a direct reaction to the experience of um, uh, of Pan. Right. Uh, I was gonna. I I was curious about that. After <laughs> I made Pan, I was like, "Oh shit! I don't know how to make films. Uh, I'm useless. No one wants to see my films. I'm completely out of touch with cinema going public. Uh, I should just fucking, you know, <laughs> dig a hole and die." Um, uh, and um, Charlie Brooker came and saved me by asking me to do an episode of, of um, Black Mirror, which was, you know, uh, part of, as part of my oeuvre. Um, I'm inordinately proud of that piece. Um, but then uh, Darkest Hour was about self-doubt um, and was about a crisis of confidence. And, um, and I really conceived that movie as being just about this little guy um, who uh, suffered a crisis of confidence. Um, and uh, it was uh, personal in that way. And what I find is the best of my work is always personal. Well said. Well, sir, this has been an absolute pleasure. We thank you so much for taking the time um, to talk through everything. And uh, Cyrano, it's out. If you're listening, check it out. Um, we can't recommend it highly enough. And um, best of luck with everything Cyrano related and in the future. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And there you have it. Uh like I said, an extremely honest, open conversation. Um, we are super grateful to Joe for his time, as well as all the people who helped us put this interview together. We're also extremely happy that you'll be able to finally see Cyrano, which, as I said, is a uh, is a movie that Dan and I both really like quite a bit. Again, Cyrano out this Friday, February 25th in theaters everywhere. Um, and uh, that's that. Uh, in terms of the B-side, obviously, you can follow me on Twitter at Scruffy Look, and you can follow Dan on Twitter at 
DJ Mecca. And uh, I believe also coinciding with this will be his review of Cyrano on the film stage as well as an interview with uh, one of the stars, Kelvin Harrison Jr. So keep an eye out for that stuff. If you like what you've heard here, please do rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TFSB side. You can shoot us an email at B side, B S I D E at the film And We've got some cool stuff uh, on the horizon. We are going to be doing a B-side on one of our favorites here, Ethan Hawke. So that'll be coming down the pike shortly. And uh, we also are currently prepping to do another one of our final frame episodes on the career and final film of the late, great Peter Bogdanovich. So be sure to check all that out when it drops. And as usual, thank you very much for listening. 